Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, today's guest, uh, I'm very excited to, to chat with. His name is uh, General Michael Meese, uh, U.S. Army, retired. I spent 32 years in the Army, including deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Bosnia. Uh, he has a lot of experience in military strategy and veterans issues, including roles on Army and VA transition teams. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that there. And something I know we're going to talk about, uh, he now works as president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association, or AFMA. Uh, General Meese, thanks for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and share with your listeners. Oh, yeah. And I know they're going to get a lot out of this. We had some discussion before we hit record, and I know there's a lot that we're going to get to here. Uh, but before we get into that, I really, especially with your background and the things you've been involved in, when you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does responsible leadership look like to you? Well, I would say that responsible leadership is uh, leading an organization or a group of people to accomplish objectives in a way that takes into account all of the ill-defined context in which whatever those tasks are are being accomplished so that whatever you're doing can continue for a long time. I I think responsible leadership uh, really uh, applies even more at the strategic level when you're leading larger organizations um, than it does at the tactical level because kind of responsible leadership is assumed for all those people uh, at the tactical level. Mm. No, I like that. I like that. And you know what? Because I've not done this before when I've, I've had, uh, you know, some other military leaders on here. But let's go ahead and break down those those two terms because I know they get used a lot more in, uh, in in the private sector these days. 
But when you talk about strategic level and tactical level, for, for listeners, break that down. What is the what are the differences between those two levels? Well, the real uh, essence of it is: Are you leading through other leaders? Uh, in other words, a company commander in the army, uh, you were in the Marine Corps, a platoon leader in the Marine Corps, um, a manager in a business operation where uh, he or she is continuously interacting with the people that they have. And everything that they're doing, they can kind of have visibility and see all of the people that are working with them in this organization. That's a tactical level leader because they're imparting the the mission, the motivation, the uh, communications to all of those people directly. And so that all the people need to do is look to their leader, uh, wherever he or she may happen to be, and then follow what they're doing. Uh, In the U.S. Army, it's sort of the infantry motto is follow me and do as I do. And uh, that's what a tactical level leader does. By contrast, a strategic level leader is leading through other leaders. It's a different, it's it's not either easier or harder, but it's a different kind of leadership because you're not interacting with all of the workers, all the employees, all the soldiers or Marines uh, that are actually have to carry out the task. You have to deal in this complex or what I described as an ill-defined environment. Uh, other people have defined these, co- these environments as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And you've got to define that environment and then come up with a way to explain to other leaders and then have those other leaders explain to their subordinates and then those subordinates explain all the way down until you get to the tactical level leaders because it's going to be the ultimate employees or soldiers or Marines or airmen or whoever it's going to be that's going to actually accomplish that mission. And it's a, uh, and that's why I think responsible leadership uh, generally is at that strategic level because you're dealing with a lot more complex kind of uh, issues uh, that you've got to be able to suss out and uh, come up with solutions for, and then figure out how to impart that throughout the entire organization. Mm. No, I like that. That is a very great uh, breakdown. And, you know, my listeners should be familiar with that, that VUCA acronym there. We had uh, Ira Wolf on uh, several episodes back, and he kind of went very deep into that. Uh, but, but you know, I, and I really, I really do like what you had to say there. And I'm curious, like uh, somebody who's kind of uh, climbed that ladder, if you will, you know, making all the way to brigadier general. Um, have you noticed, because this is my experience, that that that's one of the big stumbling blocks for leaders as they progress through their career is making that transition from tactical leadership to strategic leadership. Uh, I completely agree with you. It's a different level of skills. Uh, and some people are tremendous tactical leaders because they just sort of exude the confidence. Those are the kind of people that you see in the movies and you want to be like them. And it could be uh, seeing them in the movies in a business case, in a military case, uh, in a sports thing, on sports teams. Uh, those are tactical level leaders. On the other hand, the best quarterbacks in the NFL don't necessarily make the best coaches and almost certainly not make the best general managers who have got to make the broader decisions. A company commander doesn't necessarily become a very good uh, brigade or division uh, commander because there you've got to 
think about your messages, think really in much more detail about that environment that you're dealing with and be able to articulate that effectively. And there's some steps that I've seen that work effectively to be able to make it work. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And and you, you are, are dead on there. That's, you know, that's the one thing that, uh, you know, through my, my federal civilian career, I kept having people trying to push me into getting into like regional management jobs and things like that. And I had to look, that I'm just not cut out for that. I, I don't have that political savvy to operate at those levels. And, you know, it would have been career suicide for me if I'd went there. I would have just, A, I wouldn't have enjoyed my job. And B, I don't know how effective I would have been because like you just pointed out, I, I'm very much a, uh, you know, one-on-one work with the person type. And, and the more bureaucracy you put between me and the person, uh, the less effective I am. And, well, and, and Earl, that's actually the first step of leadership is knowing yourself and knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are. You would have been a much less effective leader had you not recognized that and thought, gee, I can be a great regional manager or whatever the next step might have been. Uh, and if you step into that, that's why people, uh, when they get themselves in, in trouble, because they don't do that kind of self-assessment. No, you are a hundred percent correct, and and I, and I love that because it wasn't until uh, I got to hanging out with my my army buddy that kind of helped me uh, found the leadership phalanx. I didn't realize because the way the Marines did it, everything we do is the most special thing that anybody does, right? And so those eleven leadership principles were always pounded into our heads as they were, you know, Marine Corps things. And I didn't realize right. that the that the Army taught those as well. And and so that that know yourself and seek self improvement. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. And, uh, but, you know, I, and I'm curious, you know, for again, with your experiences, why is it that people have such a hard time doing that and coming to grips with, you know, maybe they're not cut out for that next step of leadership. Maybe where they're at is the most important place and the most vital place for them to be. Well, we have a generally competitive society uh, and everybody uh, thinks of themselves of, of potentially being more successful than they really can be. Also, a lot of times um, we're told that you can be a lot more successful. In fact, I uh, joke with my uh, kids that are all in their 30s, uh, you know, I did not coddle any of my children and make sure that they all did things where they all got awards and were told all uh, that they were great all the time. Sometimes you need to be able to know when you're getting a, a B or a C or a D on uh, a, an exam or uh, some sort of academic assignment and be able to judge yourself instead of always thinking that you're the best at everything. And, um, and so I think that sometimes if we don't have a realistic view of good, what's good and what's bad and what's di distinguishing great from just sort of mediocre, uh, it's sometimes easy to kind of re uh, believe our own uh, reports and think that we can be much better than we can be if we don't really have that assessment of uh, what our strengths and weaknesses actually are. Um, I think as a leader, when I have been done counseling in the military, uh, again, uh, uh, throughout my career, I taught for quite a bit up at West Point. Being able to actually grade people was really helpful, not just because it was good on uh, grading an economic test or a paper on national security policy, but it helped me 
translate that over into being able to provide effective critiques for people that worked for me. We just went through our annual planning cycle or annual evaluation cycle here uh, at AFMA, uh, American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. And those techniques of being able to stress the strengths and weaknesses of everybody is a skill set that not every leader has. And I think it's really important uh, to not just be make it easy and tell everybody that they're great, but actually tell them where their strengths and weaknesses are and where they really can succeed in the future. Oh, you know, you're, you're definitely singing to the, the choir today. Um, so on the day that we're recording this episode 166 of the responsible leadership podcast hit. And, uh, I shared a story that uh, Colin Powell shared, uh, in his book about, uh, the piece of advice he got, uh, from, from captain, um, trying to think of the name now, Lewis cell, I believe it was, uh, where he, the, the advice was, uh, young, Young Powell has a severe temper, but makes a mature effort to keep it in control. And uh, in the book, uh, he talks about how that piece of advice really changed the complete trajectory of his military career. Probably wouldn't have had much of one if he hadn't got the advice and uh, led to where he was uh, as a as a leader when he tragically passed away. And, and I think what, what you're saying there is so important right now because you know, working with the private sector and again, working some as, as federal civilian, you know, that's the one place where I see a lot of leaders struggle with the most is giving, giving that type of valuable, critical, crucial feedback that can help put somebody on the path of having a successful career versus just letting them drive right off the cliff. Yeah. Uh, Imagine if that captain had thought, Oh my gosh, this African-American young second lieutenant, uh, again, I know I knew General Powell um, uh, and was on a, a board with him. If uh, this uh, Cooney, New York ROTC graduate, boy, he's too fragile and I bet, better not critique him like this. He never would have turned out to be the great leader that he was. And so we can't think that our subordinates are too fragile to get, again, kindly provided constructive criticism to allow them to improve. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is, again, I love that you use the word fragile because I think most leaders feel that the folks are too fragile, are too fragile yeah. to get that feedback. And, you know, the truth is, in my experience, is most people want that because that translates into authenticity. Because if you're just, oh, everything you're doing is great and, they know that's not true. They they know that they have room for improvement and they want to hear it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, I love it. So, um, you know, I'm just kind of curious. We were talking about, uh, you know, General Colin Powell and he's got his 13 lessons uh, uh, for life and leadership. What what are some of your life and leadership lessons that you took throughout your career? Well, I uh, there's uh, a lot of them I, I've sort of – uh, when I ran the Department of Social Sciences up at West Point, they taught, uh, I was in charge of the folks teaching the political science, economics, uh, uh, combating terrorism center, um, and others to all of the cadets up there. Uh, we had a variety of things. And the first one, uh, it sounds like uh, a uh, it counters that uh, um, it, it's not being soft, but it's called being kind. In other words, if you're going to approach somebody, you want to do it in the right kind of way uh, so that uh, people are not uh, pushed back by those sorts of things or harsh. Um, uh, The second uh, that I kind of follow is 
um, to uh, have a doctrine of no surprises, uh, making sure that I get the information up to me from any of my subordinates. I don't uh, shoot the messenger as things are coming in uh, and that I'm able to deal with that, uh, those things pretty uh, directly. Uh, the third is uh, making sure that uh, uh, you have a sense of humor uh, as you're approaching things. Um, you've always got to be able to maintain that perspective, whoever you're dealing with. Uh, the fourth uh, thing that I try to think of, and I've only got five, not 13, like General Powell, uh, <laughs> is to listen. Um, uh, and I can give you a couple of different examples uh, later on, but uh, m most good leaders will know a lot more than a lot of those people around them, but they don't get any smarter unless they're listening. Uh, and then finally, I've always believed that leaders should eat last. And you probably saw that in the Marine Corps, that if there's no food left, the officers at the end of the line are the ones that don't get the food or get the hard biscuit uh, at the end uh, after all the meat's gone. Um, and so having that kind of approach, uh, those sort of five things I've always thought of as being important. They're not uh, grand uh, leadership philosophies, but they're kind of helped me stay grounded in the way that I approach my leadership. That was true in the military and it's been true as I've transitioned it into the civilian environment. No, I, I really, I really do like those uh, quite a bit. And, and I like the fact that you, you kind of really pushed out there that, that kindness isn't being soft. And uh, let, let's unpack that one a little bit more, because I think that again, in the civilian sector, I think that's the one thing that really shocks folks to find out about military leadership. They, they see this, kind of Hollywood version of yelling, screaming, spitting, slobbering, just, just yelling orders and everybody jumping to, and, and they kind of miss that, that kindness and, and love uh, that is part of military leadership. So, so let's talk about that kindness, not being softness. Yeah, you absolutely need to care for everybody, which means giving them the honest truth, keeping them informed as much as possible, getting the information to them, and not sugarcoating it, not treating them as if they're fragile, not treating them as if uh, they're not going to be able to uh, take what you're telling them. Uh, you know, uh, to translate that into what we're doing here uh, right now, um, we're in the process of implementing the uh, rules from this administration that everybody has to either have a COVID vaccination or a COVID test. So in leading this organization of about 197 employees that I have, I had a, a half an hour podcast, essentially video conference with everybody laying out to them exactly what the policy is going to be, exactly how we're going to approach it. And that was doing it in a way that sets the right culture for my organization of kindness, not to sugarcoat what we're doing and not to avoid it and not to just put it in a memo and have uh, somebody from HR send that out. But because people uh, understandably are very concerned one way or the other about vaccination or not vaccination and all of the issues with testing. Leaders have got to be there to be able to uh, approach things in a way where they can demonstrate that empathy, that kindness, that appreciation for where their employees may have concerns and be able to address that straight on. Yeah, no, that's a great example. That's a great example. And then uh, let's go to the, the, the leaders eat last. Yeah, definitely, uh, you know, kind of a, a doctrine very familiar with with the Marines. And I know, you know, a lot of folks are kind of familiar with it thanks to the, the Simon Sinek uh, book. But 
you know, I think the one thing that he missed, and and I'm sure this, uh, I'm curious to hear if this was your experiences as well, you know, that the the one thing with that doctrine that is so great is it, it, it's it's a good barometer of how good of a leader you are. And, and when I say that, the way I explain it to folks is, look, here's the thing. Yes, leaders eat last. They want to make sure that all, all everybody's taken care of before they take theirs. But if you're doing your job, if you're being a really good leader and, and you're looking out for your people, they're not going to want to see you suffer. And they're going to see that you maybe ran short of food and don't have that much. And next thing you know, you're going to start people start seeing people kind of uh, scrimp and take a little bit off their tray to make sure that you're taken care of. And, no, and that's, give, yeah, that's exactly right. In other words, uh, you were in the Marine Corps after I was in the Army, uh, and not many of your listeners were probably in the Army in the 80s. Uh, I had my own mess uh, truck. Uh, where I had my, I had uh, five cooks that would cook for my field artillery battery. This was back when we had an inner German border over in Europe. And so we would be out there uh, in February at Grafenbeer. The snow would be out there and I would be the one eating last. So if I, if they know the battery commander is the last one eating, the cook is going to be sure to have enough food for everybody there. And, uh, and that's why, you do that. It's it's not just some sort of self-abnegation uh, of uh, making yourself a martyr because you don't get the food, but you're right. It's making sure that they're going to take care and make sure everybody in the battery is well-fed uh, before the battery commander is going to walk through there. Right. And I'm sure if you were kind of a jerk and you did just kind of lead by the weight on your collar, you, you, you wouldn't have seen that same level of care and concern, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and that's where, you know, in the civilian world, sometimes, you know, folks get uh, tied down with, I'm the CEO, I shouldn't have to do this, I shouldn't have to. You know, maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe you shouldn't necessarily, but, you do, you know, people need help. And the, and the more that you're willing to pitch in and, and show that you are, quote, part of the team, instead of just saying you're part of the team, people want to take care of you. They don't want to see you stumble. They want to see you thrive and survive because it means that they thrive and survive, right? Uh, exactly. And in fact, it ties into the other thing that I talked about, about listening. If you're talking to the individuals, you know, very small things. Uh, we have an office here in Reston. We have an office on Fort Meyer right there by the Pentagon. And when I go back and forth, I say, hey, listen, is there any mail that has to go back and forth between these two? Uh, not because I should be the one that's delivering the mail, but it allows me to talk to all of our different employees to see what's going on, to make sure that things are happening. And you learn a heck of a lot there. Just uh, it used to be the phrase in the 80s of management by wandering around. But you've, you've got to build that in. And that's especially true today uh, when we have remote work, when we're on Zoom, when we're doing a lot more things electronically. Uh, there's nothing uh, like the face-to-face -face communication with individuals. Whenever you can do that as a leader uh, in whatever setting is really, really important. Yeah, no, 100%. So I'm just curious, um, were there any leaders that, that really kind of influenced you? We talked about General Colin Powell's uh, experiences as, as a young second lieutenant. Um, were there any leaders that really kind of ha had that impact on you, and what did they teach you? Yeah, uh, um, it's really where I started to distinguish between the tactical level leadership and the strategic level leadership was in the 2000 seven or so time frame, I had the opportunity 
uh, General Ray Odierno, who was the chief staff of the Army um, and uh, tragically just passed away last year. Uh, but he was the three-star commander over in Iraq, and he was working for General Dave Petraeus, who was the four-star commander over in Iraq. And they brought me over as part of the Commander's Initiatives Group to help do the campaign plan during the surge in Iraq uh, there uh, in 2007. That was right when we were having all kinds of problems, and uh, the uh, President Bush made the decision to surge in five brigades. But uh, the, the aspect of that that was important was learning from both General Odierno and General Petraeus uh, uh, what it meant to be a strategic level leader uh, of leading through other leaders. And, and what I learned from them, and General Petraeus has talked about this a little bit more, has been uh, you have to uh, be able to get the big ideas right is step one. In other words, that's understanding that VUCA environment of what's going on and where do you really want everybody going and what direction do you want them to go? And it at the strategic level is very, very difficult to do because many times you're making decisions among very, very bad options and you've got to kind of sometimes choose the least bad option or the best way to get everybody moving in the right direction. The second is you got to communicate that throughout the organization. Um, and I saw both General Odierno and General Petraeus push the information out through all of the brigades, through everybody that they had in many, many different formats, whether it was uh, daily briefings, whether it was traveling around throughout the area. Um, uh, you had to simplify what you were doing and then get that information out. Uh, the third step for strategic leadership um, is being able to, to oversee the implementation of those ideas. In other words, making sure that you go down to the lower levels and understand when you put something in at the top at the strategic level, is it actually getting out to those tactical commanders? How is that being interpreted? And uh, um, is it really being done correctly? Uh, normally in the military, and I think this is also true in business, people not following what they say to do up at the headquarters is usually not willful insubordination. It's people down there who just don't understand the perspective that you're bringing to it or what the intent of that order or campaign plan is or whatever it happens to be. And then the final thing is how do you revise that uh, strategic guidance, capture the best practices and lessons from the various tactical units, and then improve the decisions that are made at the highest levels to get them uh, out to everybody in the field. Mm. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and I think, you know, again, you touched on something there that I think is, again, uh, something that's kind of hard for some of the civilian folks I've worked with to wrap their minds around, again, thanks to Hollywood. When you're talking about those strategic to tactical decisions, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never actually been a, a, a general of any stripe uh, myself, but uh, being in leadership roles in the Marines, those those strategic things are they're more of of boundaries, I guess, to play within versus strict paint by numbers, right? You you want to give an idea, the we the the commander's intent, right? Absolutely, is you have to get uh, the mission, the intent. You're you're providing uh, kind of the left and right limits, the guardrails. You're setting up the campaign plan. You can't win the uh, day from the headquarters, but you can set up your subordinate units 
so that they have the resources and apply those resources effectively so that they can win the day. And I think that that's true, whether it's a um, military situation in Iraq or Afghanistan, or it's a business situation here in the United States. Yeah, 100%. I mean, because, you know, that's where, you know, when we start talking about micromanaging and those sorts of things, that's kind of where that comes in and in, in a little bit more in the civilian world is is when you don't trust the those subordinate teams, we don't trust the, the various parts to, to execute um, and you try to plan every single step. And, and a lot of times when you do that, you, you really restrict, you restrict the success because you stifle innovation, right? No, that's exactly right. Uh, when I was teaching at the, uh, at the national war college here, we had senior level, uh, colonels, Navy captains, uh, ambassadors, FSO ones that are going to become ambassadors. Um, and I explained to them that if you are doing a job at that senior strategic level that you're comfortable with, you probably are doing your subordinates job. And there's a great tendency at the highest levels to micromanage because that's what you're comfortable with. But that's not what you should be doing as a strategic leader. You need to be dealing with the really hard problems as a strategic leader that are uh, ill-defined. Those are the ones that are complex and uncertain. And that's what you need to be concentrating on. Let those subordinates uh, in your organization uh, execute that once you've given them the proper guidance, mission, and resources to be able to accomplish what you want the broader organization to do. Yeah, what was the the famous patent quote? Said, uh, "Don't tell people what to do; tell them what needs to be done and get out of their way." That's right. Yeah, no, I love it. So um, let, let's talk here a little bit more. We've kind of mentioned the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association, or AFMA. Um, let's talk about that a little bit because I'll be honest: as a veteran, uh, I hadn't heard of this until uh, th this interview came up and then doing some research and uh, getting ready for this. I caught another uh, podcast you did with, um, I think it was Colonel Candid. Right. Uh, uh, Candace Frost. Right. Yeah. The, uh, what was it? The, the Candid leadership. Anyways. Right. I I'm going to put a link to that, her podcast in the show notes for this. Cause folks, I think you need to go check it out because uh, she's done a really great job with it. But you shared the history of this uh, organization, and it goes back way farther. So I'm going to let you tell the story because sure. I sure can't. Well, no, it's it's interesting. Uh, uh, actually, we're the oldest nonprofit that has been taking care of the military. Uh, next week, we will be celebrating our 143rd birthday. Wow. Uh, it, it goes all the way back to the Old West because back then when uh, service members were out uh, in the West – and uh, uh, fighting in uh, um, at the time, anybody who died in combat, there was no insurance or anything to take care of them. They literally passed the hat and whatever money went into the hat, that's what went to the widow. And that's what the widow had to live off uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, well, at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, uh, Custer and the 7th Cavalry were wiped out and there was nobody to pass the hat, nobody to pass the hat to. So shortly after that, the War Department in 1879, which was the predecessor to the Department of the Army and the Department of Defense, formed a committee, and it included some famous generals, Abner Doubleday, uh, Arthur MacArthur, and Philip Sheridan, and they created the Army Mutual Aid Association. 
And this was an association where at that time it was just army officers would put in $2 a month. And if any of them died, their widow would receive $200, uh, which back in 1879 was a lot of money. Uh, subsequently, it stayed with those same organization as a totally mutual organization. We're not a charity. Uh, we don't accept donations. Um, but uh, what we do is have uh, about 100,000 military people, uh, veterans like yourself uh, uh, and their families who uh, get insurance from us. And then if anybody uh, passes away, we provide that insurance to them in addition to having survivor assistance services so that uh, if any of our members uh, do die, we not only make sure that they get the insurance benefit from us, but they'll get their VA benefits uh, from uh, the uh, Army or the military services, their survivor benefit plan payments if, they're, if they've got children that are still in the home that are eligible for it, dependents, educational assistance, Social Security, and all of the other kinds of benefits. So it's a complete survivor assistance services package as well as insurance. And we do that on a nonprofit basis. So it's actually far less expensive than the insurance that uh, service members would get uh, while they're in the service from SGLI. And in most cases, uh, in virtually all cases, less than uh, veterans group life insurance. So it's a good opportunity for people to take advantage of. No, it definitely sounds like it. And, and uh, you know, I think it's a great service. Um you know, I'm, I'm looking into it, uh, you know, like I said, as, as part of this, uh, definitely looking into, to that and going to be telling all my friends about it. Cause I, I, I wonder how many other folks, uh, don't know about this, but, uh, I mean, that's just a great, uh, that's just a great story. Uh, and you know, it, that, that history. And, and that's the thing. I love history and I love hearing about organizations that have that kind of rich connection because, you know, looking at the website and hearing you kind of talk about it and, and, you know, listeners, um, I'm sure you could hear kind of, uh, uh, Mike smiling there as he talks about this organization. Well, that's, what's great about it is it really is it's service members helping other service members. Uh, we've been privileged. We, we literally have given out over a billion dollars since nine 11, again, not as a charity, but as people helping out each other. And it's everything from, a World War II veteran uh, that uh, may have been our member for 70 years uh, who passes away at the age of 99 all the way up to a sergeant first class who may be killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, we take care of them, we take care of their family, and we ensure that their financial independence and security is provided for, which I think is very, very important for everybody who's serving. No, a hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree. And, and, you know, I really hope listeners, the one thing I really want them to take away from, from all of this is, you know, that level of, of alignment to your, your purpose as an organization. That's something that is super special. And, and any organization that can capture that and can get leadership in places that, that, where they are that aligned with, with what the meaning and the, the purpose of the organization is. I mean, that's just special. I mean, again, hearing you talk about it, it, it it's just, just hearing you talk about it. My listeners can't see you. I can't see you. They know I use a service uh, uh, where we, we can't see each other. But hearing you talk about it, it just it, it gets me fired up about the organization. And, man, who doesn't want ambassadors like that for, for their business, right? 
No, and, and that's what's neat is our members do reach out to a lot of others. Uh, and so that's why I appreciate having the opportunity to be on this uh, podcast to let folks know about it. Uh, but uh, our members are the best uh, salesmen for us, so to speak, uh, because they let their other uh, people know about it. And uh, we really do take care of everybody. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, and again, it, it shows. I just want to kind of circle back again about that financial well-being piece, because I think that is definitely something. I know the military does a little bit, um, could probably do a better job, but we've seen, you know, athletes as they come into the NFL or the MLB or whatever league it is that they come into making all these massive amounts of money and then they end up still broke. Um, you know, we kind of talked about some of the, the military missteps with money management. Um, but, you know, that's something that, that I think more private sector leaders need to take into account as well. And, you know, I think one person who captured that very well was uh, Bob Chapman from Barry Wade Miller. He was also featured in some of Simon Sinek's works. But he said that he was at a wedding one day and it hit him that that process of he, he was watching the father uh, walk the bride down the aisle and it, and it hit him that that's really what happens when a a parent, a family, whatever it is, sends their sends their loved one to come work for an organization is they're they're giving them the way uh, away to the organization, even if it's for a short period of time during the day, hoping that they're going to take care of them and provide for them while they're gone. And I think this is a crucial part of it, right? Because especially as we get new hires into an organization or as people advance through their careers, not everybody, sadly, with uh, the state of education in the country, has been exposed to solid financial planning skills. And we need to no. fill that gap, right? Yeah, that's exactly true. I think that, and it gets harder because of two things. One, people are more mobile than they used to be. So, and this was is true, obviously, of people in the military because you're moving away from home. So you don't have mom or dad being able to help you balance your checkbook or learn what kind of uh, expenditures you should have or why you may not want to buy the largest, most uh, – uh, expensive car, TV, or anything that somebody's going to try to talk you into uh, on credit and and those kinds of things. Um, the other, so people are moving further away. And the second thing is there's a lot of unfortunately bad information that's out there uh, on the internet, uh, through social media and other kinds of things where uh, people of all ages can get lured into a lot of things which they don't understand and can be financially devastating for them. And so that's why one of the things at AFMA that we do for our member benefits, and again, this is uh, just part of what we do. It's not a, a charge or anything like that on our Intel Center, as people can find it. Uh, I, I think you'll put up the uh, site. It's www.afma.com. But in the Intel Center are a lot of techniques on being able to effectively manage your funds, um, nowadays, everybody that's coming into the military different from you or I, everybody is enrolled in this blended retirement system. So that they actually start with a retirement plan literally from day one of joining the Marine Corps, the Army, or any other military service. And so understanding how a 401k works 
and they're involved in the federal government's thrift savings plan and which funds to be in and those kinds of things. That's really important for people to know, and they need to be able to get credible advice, not just talking to uh, whoever they happen to see on social media or following the latest trend for Dogecoin or uh, uh, investing in uh, GameStop uh, stocks or something like that uh, is not the way to go uh, because uh, their financial independence and security is very, very important. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, um, yeah. And, and I know it can be scary for private sector to do that. Like, you know, uh, like, like Mike mentioned there, the military has done a good job of filling in some of those gaps. We've got some work to do, but you know, as leaders, you know, earlier we talked about the, the kindness versus softness thing. And I think it's a kind thing to do is, is provide most organizations do a decent job of providing onboarding training, at least for their organization. Most organizations do a decent job of providing some type of, of development, uh, professional development training, but you know, they don't really think about these types of things. And, and I can promise you having seen it happen to folks in the military, if, if your folks are financially stressed, they're not performing great at work and that has a negative impact on you and your organization's performance. So it is in your best interest to provide them with some type of financial planning to help them be a little bit more stable in their home life so they can be more productive in their work life. Right. Right. Yeah. You obviously you've got to be careful with that. You don't want bosses telling people where to invest and how to invest and getting involved in that kind of thing. But within the limits, I think that that is part uh, an important part of leader development of whoever it is that's there to make sure that they've got some method of effective financial planning. In our case, we happen to have a, a good 401k and the people that provide the 401k also do a good education system. And so I make a point not to tell them what to do, but to point to them to what they can do on their app and on their phone and, uh, and resources that are good and reliable so that they can think about where their investments can be. And then we bring out the counselors so that, that you can get uh, some good uh, quality and also free advice on how you should be investing because a 25-year-old single uh, person that is working in our policy services department clearly has a very different financial plan than a married uh, uh, father of uh, three kids that's 55 who's getting ready to think about what he wants to do later on uh, in his life. Exactly, exactly. Well, Mike, we've been chatting here for a little over 40 minutes at this point, and it has been a great conversation. Um, I'm just kind of curious before we uh, look at wrapping things up, are there any, uh, are there any items that we didn't get a chance to cover uh, that you'd like to, to leave listeners with? Well, I was just going to say the last part uh, of strategic leadership in any organization may be the most important. Uh, I forget who it was that says strategy uh, uh, culture can eat strategy for lunch. Uh, and our current chairman uh, of our board of directors here at AFMA is General Dennis Reimer, who was a former chief of staff of the Army. Uh, he is a real, uh, another one of the people that I've learned a lot from, especially understanding the importance of culture in an organization. And we have specific values uh, in AFMA uh, that we have uh, which is loyalty, empathy, 
respect, as well as innovation and cooper, uh, cooperation. Um, it's important to always understand the culture of your organization and ensure that that gets executed properly uh, throughout the organization. Because if you don't work on the culture, it really doesn't matter what your assessment is and what your missions are and all of those sorts of things. Your employees are not going to be able to be responsive to it. So the last thing that I would always think about, and this is true whether it's a tactical level leadership or strategic level leadership, culture is imminently important to your success. I uh, 100% agree. And if I remember right, I think that was Peter Drucker uh, yep. that, that said that. So, and, and I'll agree. I mean, you can have the best strategy. And like you said, if you don't have the culture to execute it, it's, it's not worth, it's not worth the, the paper it's written on the plaque on the wall. Uh, so that's a, a, a great point there. A very great point. Um, so folks want to find out more about you, um, AFMA, um, any of the services you provide, uh, we kind of mentioned AFMA.com, and I'll get that on the site. But for folks, it's uh, Uh Are there any other resources that they can use to, you know, maybe reach out to you or, or just find out more about AFMA in general? Sure, that would be fine. That has all the information there on our website, uh, as well as I'm on LinkedIn. So have a fair amount of these things uh, connected on LinkedIn, and you can just look up Michael Meese. Uh, common spelling M-E-E-S-E on LinkedIn and happy to connect with anybody there who uh, listens to the podcast uh, and wants any more information uh, either about AFMA or about leadership or any other aspects of things. One of the things that I've learned throughout my life is the opportunity to get to know folks and mentor people. It's where I get a lot of energy from and learn from uh, uh, everybody out there. And so to the extent that this can't be a two-way conversation, happy to have it uh, work that way. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, General Mike Meese, thank you for being a a great guest on the show, having an outstanding conversation with uh, me and my listeners. And thank you very much for your service. I really appreciate the, the time that you put in and the great things you did for this nation. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Earl, and I appreciate uh, this opportunity to share with you as well as uh, thanking you for your service and your leadership and your commitment to improving leaders across our great nation. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's his dad? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different
Inside the Show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid.